And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The race is on, and the champagne for Lewis Hamilton's much-anticipated record equaling 91st Grand Prix victory had to be put on ice at Sochi thanks to a double whammy of five-second penalties that didn't go down well at all, either with driver or the Mercedes team. But would he have won without that despite starting on the soft tyres? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to answer that question and many more are Scott Mitchell and, hopefully, Mark Hughes. Now, Scott, uh, hello. I should say I said hopefully Mark Hughes in the intro because there's been a little bit of an internet disaster uh, in his vicinity. So he's uh, he's making a beeline to functioning internet and so hopefully will be joining us uh, very shortly. Meanwhile, you're, as usual, in Stockholm and, and battling against your own throat, I believe. Uh, yeah, I'm not feeling too great uh, this evening, but I'm going to try and uh, I'm going to try and battle through Um listeners of a past podcast in my life might remember a time where I was a bit down after a race and uh they that didn't go that wasn't particularly well received so I, I will endeavor to be more perky um you might say that Mark's guilty of an out of position start although obviously for the real thing rather than a practice you see it sounds like you've been concocting that for for some hours but it's it's only been in the past few minutes we've been aware of this problem for Mark who he was actually connected to us and then uh Went through the the slow um, the slow broadband connection uh, pain. He's had on s- dial up, isn't he? <laughs> very probably, very probably, in where he is. Uh, I had a similar problem with Christian Horner earlier today, so uh, it's evidently that sort of uh, day for it. Well, we shall say hello to Mark when he turns up, which we're hoping won't be too long. But we can get on, Scott, with what happened before the race. Uh, as everyone knows, Lewis Hamilton was hit with a pair of five-second penalty for what might be termed illegal practice starts and related activity. Uh, as ever, this is F1, so there's endless layers of complexity. So can you explain exactly what he did and why the FIA stewards gave the penalties they did? Uh, I can I can try. Um, so basically, he got the 
he got the two five-second time penalties for rule infringements on what we're going to call reconnaissance laps. So hopefully that is a term that everyone's going to be familiar with anyway, but that is basically the laps to the grid in the 30-odd minutes before the start of the race. So basically what Lewis did, uh, he went to do one of the normal practice starts. He pulled up on the right-hand side after the pit lane exit towards the very end of the pit exit road. Stopped the car to the right-hand side, space on the left for others to go through, did his practice start, and away he goes. The problem is that for Sochi, there was a designated space for the uh, for the practice starts, which was immediately after the actual pit exit lights on the right-hand side. Uh, and the issue is that there is a bit of ambiguity. There's a bit of ambiguity in in how it was written uh, in the regulations, as Michael Mazzi's. Uh, event notes from he's the race director said that practice starts could only take place on the right hand side after the pit exit lights now all weekend that has been immediately after the pit exit lights on the right hand side and even though there's not a painted box or anything like that it's pretty clear where it's been lewis has been doing the practice starts there so far as well but it after the pit exit lights is pretty vague it doesn't specify how far after. So basically when Hamilton got to this area for one of his practice starts, he noticed that, that it was very, very well rubbered in because there had been so many practice starts already. And his view was, well, there's no point in doing a practice start here because it's not going to be representative of the, the rubber I'm going to have on my grid start. It's going to be too, too grippy. So I, he asked the team, can I go further down? The team said, yes, uh, as long as you leave space on the left-hand side. So Hamilton basically trundled down to the end of the pit exit road, similar to how he do in Brazil, for example. I think everybody hopefully can picture the winding pit exit into Lagos. And then basically when you come out of that twisty bit, the drivers will go on the left-hand side at the end, very, very end of the pit lane, and then do it there. So he was basically doing that. Unfortunately, that's not allowed. The, the steward said, nope, that's uh, that's against the against the rules. So what he was done for two things, one, for stopping in the, the, the out of position place, but also because he wasn't allowed to stop where he stopped, it meant he also breached the sporting regulation. That means if you go through the pit lane and that includes the pit exit road, you have to have a consistent speed. So that's where the second five second time penalty came, came from. So, I realised that took a little bit longer than I was hoping for to, to explain. It's far from the sexiest of uh, polit- uh, of scandals or, or regulation bust-ups and uh, ambiguities, but pretty costly in this case because it, it, it wrecked Hamilton, Hamilton's chance of, of fighting for the win. So there's various questions that have arisen from this whole thing. A lot of people have asked why the the sporting penalty, should we say, the, the penalty that impacted the race for a pre-race infringement. Obviously, people have pointed out that sometimes people say speed in the pit lane before a reconnaissance lap or during that phase, and that's normally dealt with by a, a fine. So what was the the explanation for this, some would argue, fairly draconian penalty? I think that one's quite simple, and it's because Hamilton was looking for a different place to do the pit, the practice start because he felt it would be more representative, and a more representative start means a better preparation for the start. Therefore, the stewards felt he was gaining a sporting advantage by by breaching the rule because he was doing it in another place, and therefore a sporting advantage illegally, in their eyes, merited a, a sporting penalty, which is why it became an in-race competitive penalty for Hamilton and the team. 
and so many facets to this. He got Keith from Coming. Keith <laughs> exactly, Coming. exactly. It's well because I spent most of my time after the race watching Haas onboards from the middle of the race, as is my want ahead uh, of the driver rating. So uh, you've been more on top of this bit than, than me. But obviously, there was the question of the the super license points, the penalty points. Uh, Hamilton originally was given two; it was one for each infringement, and these were later removed, weren't they? So what exactly was going on there? Because he did get perilously close to uh, a potential one race automatic ban, didn't he? Yeah, so it was massively controversial because it would have put well, it did put Lewis on ten license penalty points for a twelve month period. Uh, for those who don't, who are listening and don't know, basically you can get twelve points on your super license in a twelve month period, and once you've reached twelve points, it's an automatic one race ban. Hamilton already had eight uh, going back to last year's Brazilian Grand Prix, which meant. He uh, he doesn't lose any of those points that he's accumulated until I think like the 17th of November, which is after Turkey. So another four races. And the way he's been picking them up this year, we wouldn't necessarily trust him not to get two penalty points in the next four events. So th- th- that was that was really sensitive. Hamilton was furious with that. He said it was a ridiculous rule. And he had the support of lots of other drivers as well, who this has been quite a long running thing. Drivers tend to think it's pretty ridiculous that you get penalty points for all kind, basically any sporting penalty applied to you comes with uh, at least one penalty point as a general rule, um, which means you could tot up 12 insignificant penalties and then get a ban, which isn't really what the penalty system is, is meant to be for. But luckily for Lewis, two of them have disappeared because I'm not really sure, how, it hasn't really been explained why the stewards didn't have access to this information to begin with because it was a radio message that was available and had actually been played out, I think, on the um, the official Formula One like live commentary system on the the website and the app where they play uh, team audio chunks. And um, Hamilton, I will just grab the I'll grab the exchange because it's pretty um, it is pretty important. Shall, shall I fill while you search for it on your computer? I, I've got it. I've got it. Don't worry. So basically, as I said, Hamilton came up to that point and he said, "It's all rubber here. Can I go further or not?" He was given an affirmative response. So he responded to the end of the pit wall and was told, yep, copy, as long as you leave enough room for the cars to pass. The problem here is that the end of the pit wall, Mercedes thought that just meant a little bit further along where he was. But what Hamilton meant is the end of the pit wall that runs pretty much all the way to the the end of the, the, the pit exit road. So when Mercedes saw where he'd got to, they were like, ah, this is, uh, yeah, the FAA is not going to like this. But fundamentally, the stewards say that they didn't know that this exchange had taken place when they applied the original penalty. And having heard that exchange, they accepted that Mercedes actually gave Hamilton the instruction to do what he did. Therefore, it was, I guess, the, the, the blame shifted more from Hamilton to the team. And the stewards felt that a the, the team should therefore bear the brunt of it. It wouldn't be appropriate to give Hamilton a, a, a penalty point as well as obviously he'd already served the 10 second time penalty in the race. You can't undo that. So basically Mercedes picked up the bill and uh, the, it, it's a little bit unclear, but basically in the rules, it says that if you get a reprimand or a fine, the stewards can't impose license penalty points. It's slightly unclear because there was still a sporting penalty applied in this situation. So this appears, it's classic FIA inconsistency and and, and just opaqueness, basically. But it's a rare situation where a sporting penalty and a fine have been applied, but they basically use the fact that they fined the team as a way of getting out of Hamilton. I thought it was quite a, you know, it's U-turn, it's muddy, it's unclear. 
But it's also quite neat from an FIA point of view because I think they realise that, I think they know that putting these penalty points out for such small things, it's, it, is, it is a bit silly. And I think they had every leading driver basically side with Hamilton. So I, I think this was probably the better solution. Yeah, certainly some pragmatism there. I must admit, I like the super license penalty point system in general. However, the specific way it's been implemented, I don't think is right. It's become very finickety and fussy and you do this, you get that. I don't think that's really the point. It should be there to ban a driver who has an accumulation of dangerous incidents that none of which in their own right would warrant uh, uh, a penalty or a, well, a ban rather. So yeah, that that's uh, that's fairly sensible. So kind of the last part is obviously Mercedes complained a little bit. They were slightly surprised that there was this extent of penalty, 10 seconds in total. So what's their case? Do they have a point that there's any ambiguity or lack of clarity? We should say after all that everyone else managed to not infringe this uh, this particular rule. I think it would be a bit naive to say that it was legitimate confusion and surprise that you couldn't do the start where Hamilton did but at the same time I think there is I think there is a little bit of truth to the fact that they were they were pretty confident it wouldn't result in the penalty it resulted in so I I think it was sort of a mistake was genuinely made and they wouldn't ideally want Hamilton to do the practice start where he eventually did it but uh, but once that mistake was made they sort of thought oh well the rules are pretty ambiguous so maybe we'll get away with a slap on the wrist so I I, I agree with Mercedes position to an extent I think that vague or wording vague wording that can be interpreted in different ways is dangerous and when when it comes down to the regulation of of, of sport and of competition that's really bad and when there is an element when there is a layer of ambiguity in there uh, it needs to be an absolute cast iron breach in my view to warrant a, a, a penalty like that 10 seconds is, is is literally race changing so and I don't think that was the case here however once they've decided that is a breach then the second breach comes into play because he stopped in the pit lane um obviously if you do a practice start in a designated area you're exempt from breaching the rule that says you can't stop in the pit lane so it just becomes this sort of like minor cascade effect michael mazzi the race director says it was just a simple error from mercedes perspective and pointed out the fact that bottas did it in the right place that lewis and the other drivers through the weekend have done it in the right place this was just a it was a misunderstanding and a miscommunication but it was still an error from mercedes and hamilton well, I've got very, very good news for everyone listening because Mark Hughes has just popped up. He's uh, he's poised to start speaking in a moment. So I'll, I'll leave you while uh, while Mark's sorting himself out to make sure his microphone's on, Scott, with obviously Hamilton did complain a little bit after the race. He suggested that maybe the stewards were trying to hold him back because he was the runaway leader. Obviously, he was not especially happy over the radio. I personally am... Um, I think he gets a bit too much stick for his uh, his attitude and approach over the radio because... Those are very specific circumstances, but do you think he he had any reason to be unhappy with that? And also, do you think maybe his head dropped a little bit when he rejoined in third place? I'm pretty sure his head did drop. It's very rare. We normally see Hamilton in in fighting mode, and but but we all but there are also a few occasions where he when when he feels he's been wronged and he, when he feels that factors have gone against him that he can't control and it's all a bit unfair. He does have those moments, and sometimes he does need to be properly g'd up. 
sometimes venting over the radio is as you sort of alluded to is is a part of that process but in this instance he knew he was many many seconds behind Bottas and Verstappen he had older tires that he needed to make last a really long way he was annoyed as well with the fact that he'd been pitted a lap or two earlier than he wanted to so I think it was just this factor this series of factors that got under his skin basically and and, and brought him down when it comes to the post-race comments, I, I think Hamilton did uh, realise he, he'd spoken slightly out of turn. I, I understand, I wouldn't go so far as to say he's paranoid, but I understand the suspicion because, you know, he's putting together this mega championship run, he's dominating, and then you have for, you know, you have over the Spanish Grand Prix weekend, you remember this engine mode technical directive came out, suddenly quality modes are going to be banned just because, mis- and it, the the... The, the automatic response is, oh, it's because Hamilton, uh, Hamilton and Mercedes are dominating. Mercedes got the best engine mode. Then they go to um, Monza and Mugello and there are s- some issues there. Hamilton was banged to rights with his penalty in, at Monza, but at Mugello, the, Mercedes felt very, very strongly that the FIA had sort of stacked the deck to cause a bit of carnage at the at the restart. They didn't want to cause a crash necessarily, but, but mix things up and make things, make, make things harder. And now you come here to Sochi and Hamilton's hit with an unprecedented penalty for something that's just not happened before. And it's an in-race penalty. It's a time penalty. And it and it throws him out of the lead and it injects a little bit of spice back into the um, the championship battle. So I understand all that suspicion or the little bit of suspicion that might be creeping in, but it is a step too far to, to, to say that they're out to get him. And he did soften his stance post-race. He said on television, um, I think that, that uh, they're trying to stop me but then when he was asked specifically about that, if he felt targeted, he said that he didn't necessarily think it was him as an individual. It's just, it just feels like you're fighting uphill when you're the guys that are in the lead and there's lots of different things happening that just seem to be putting more scrutiny on you, more pressure on you, taking little jabs at you. So he just said the, their, their job now is to keep their heads down, keep fighting, do a better job and, and be squeaky clean. Then he can't get done for anything. Excellent. Well, you're very, very thoroughly covered all angles of that mark hughes is now here and has given given us the thumbs up to confirm he's all right are you okay after your mercy dash you're not out of breath or anything (laughs) it involved a drive which is um yeah i wasn't expecting to do it this time of night Uh, yeah internet went down but yeah there you go i found another one (laughs) (laughs) well we, we we've covered every angle of the hamilton penalty so i just wanted to get your very brief thoughts on do you think the penalty was correct and or do you think Mercedes were right it's a little bit harsh you can just give the quick opinion version of that um I think it was um a very unusual penalty uh, to be applied in race rather than after the race and um also unusual in that it was for some an offense committed before the race um but like you said he's going to try and be squeaky clean you I guess you have to be squeaky clean and and you just opened the door there by choosing what he chose to do um to 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 allow some controversy in and it duly did well I'm inclined to agree with that in that we praise Mercedes for leaving no stone unturned usually but every now and again there is a stone that is not uh, that has not been looked under, as it were. I was taught to, 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 well torture, to torture the metaphor. I was just thinking, what's an un, what's an unturned stone? What's in it? It's just a stone, it's isn't a stone it? Stone that's been turned. But sometimes, yeah. Yeah. sometimes there is an unturned stone. What is not not unturned? Yeah, exactly. Just a stone. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, I'm glad we've uh, we've clarified uh, clarified that one. Uh, but yeah, basically, every now and again they do miss something. Now, Mark, 
Uh, this penalty for Hamilton, it shattered what was actually quite an interesting setup for the race. He was on softs, of course, for the start with what happened in Q2 with the red flag and also the fact he had to have the, the second run having had his first lap time deleted. So that gave Bottas a relatively easy run in reality. But should we should we imagine the race that, that would or could have happened without the penalty when you've got Hamilton up front on softs, Bottas then for Stappen behind? Yeah, well, the pre-race expectation and um, as it the the the... the, the Tire behaviour that we saw on the day um, actually results in two two would be versions, um, <laughs> neither of which we actually got, of course. But um, basically, the the hard tire was much better than anticipated. Um, was was a better tire than the medium, and so um, what had looked to be a great disadvantage for Lewis in starting on the softs, it would have turned out not to have been. He would have just, it would have been a slightly different way of doing the same thing and he would have been fighting um, with a different strategy, but he would have been fighting with a fairly equal um, chance against Valtteri. And uh, I think what was going to happen is that he would have um, he would have had a pit about when he, when he did. Uh, then he would have needed to have got to less than a pit stop gap, 25 seconds around Sochi, behind, in between his stop and Valtteri's stop. And Valtteri would have been having to go flat out to prevent Lewis from getting under that 25 seconds. And that would have decided the race. Whichever of those two won that contest would have decided the race. Um, but that's not how it had looked. It was like it was going to be when, when you based it on Friday's long running. It looked as if if you started on the soft, you were going to have to be so gentle with the hard to get it to do the remaining distance that you you wouldn't be able to keep up a good enough pace to to be able to win the race. But as it turned out, that that wasn't the case, and so the penalties definitely um, lost them, absolutely lost them a chance of victory. It wasn't like the victory was already lost because he was on the soft tire. As it turned out, he wasn't. He was he could still have fought for that victory. But as it was, Valtteri Bottas did win. His second win of the season is ninth in Formula One. Now, obviously, Max Verstappen was well covered. That wasn't really a big concern for him. So it was quite straightforward. But Valtteri did kind of reprise his Australia 2019 slowdown lap blast of his critics, uh, respectfully disagreeing with, uh, with them in that uh, very direct way of, way of his. So what, what did you make of the fact that not only did he have the win, he also had that little moment. And actually, given that Hamilton had some, some misfortune, although... The, the first run thing in Q2 that played a part in putting him in that position was ultimately his fault, even though the red flag was bad luck. Do, do you think kind of Valtteri had fully earned that blast given the way he won? Or do you just think that's just a, a, a sports person quite naturally having a bit of a vent after they've uh, got back on top? Um, I think the latter. But having said that, um, I think Valtteri can take satisfaction from the fact that it, you know, it wasn't him who messed up um, in Q2 and went over the line and got his time disallowed and then thereby put himself in a position of jeopardy that duly unfolded. Um, he did everything right. So he can't sort of be hard on himself for not really having had um, to fight Hamilton to take this win. He put himself in a position to do that. And, you know, he is always... Um, being able to just bounce back after you know the the most you know difficult difficult weekends and and this constant drubbing he's been getting from Hamilton, so he, he still bounces back, and um, this just shows that um, 
he's absolutely right to 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 do that and the opportunity came and he was there to take it and who's to say he wouldn't have fought out um fought for the victory because it did it didn't look as though um one of them had a a performance advantage over the other they looked very very evenly matched around here yeah again it would have been interesting to see how that one uh played out but scott we can't have you sitting around doing no work on this podcast and letting mark do uh do all the talking so uh red bull it was a quiet weekend for Red Bull in the end. Verstappen actually turned in a really mega qualifying lap to, to pip the underachieving Bottas and take second. But there was there was no sign of a, of a challenge in the race, was there, from uh, from Red Bull? No, it, it faded pretty quickly. He sort of, he sort of gave a game chase, didn't he, early on. But it became pretty clear that he just didn't have didn't have the speed. Max Max put in what I think Red Bull boss Christian Horner called the best qualifying lap of Max's Red Bull career. Uh, to grab second on the grid and it did surprise Max as well I don't think he's been on the front row or the podium at Sochi before because it's just not a track that really suits the Red Bull Um, and he hadn't been quick at all all weekend or the car hadn't been quick he'd certainly not looked like a podium a, a front row contender and it looked like he'd have a fight on his hand to even get on the podium at one stage even when they got into qualifying change of wind direction sort of threw them again and wasn't really struggling, but he kept making changes through qualifying and even into Q3, whether that's going with the track evolution, whether that's still sort of experimenting with stuff because it's not quite there, but he just he just had the front end that had been missing the rest of the weekend in, in Q3, nailed the lap, grabbed second. Um, so I suspect performance-wise in the race, he just sort of regressed to the mean, really. I think he was still, what, five or six temps slower than, than Hamilton on pole in qualifying. So he was never really like there, absolutely there, but... But he put himself in in contention. His race could have been absolutely miserable had Q two gone gone away from him. He was quite lucky not to have suffered the same fate as Hamilton because he went back out on softs at the end of the chaotic Q two, and um, he lit, he got the call to abort the lap as he was braking basically for the final corner. It was as close as you can come to nearly qualifying on the softs, but then it could have backfired because by aborting the lap, he then fell to ninth while there were still three guys on track who could have improved. Uh, but Red Bull just about judged that properly. Um, and it at least gave him a fighting chance, but just never in a way that actually ever made you think that Bottas was under threat. Yeah, and ultimately, uh, yeah. Verstappen just keeps doing this, doesn't he? He gets the maximum out of the car, but he just doesn't have the machinery to to make a fight of it, which is a, a little bit of a shame because we, we want to see him up there taking on Hamilton and Bottas. Uh, now, Mark, Red Bull was kind of a, a race of two halves for them, wasn't it? Not so much in terms of time, but in terms of two sides of the garage. Alex Albon actually had a pretty horrible weekend, didn't he? He qualified 10th, just over a second off Verstappen, finished 10th, had a, had a five-place grid penalty for a gearbox, uh, gearbox change, and then he had that first lap pit stop. He also had a five-second time penalty for not taking the comedy turn two runoff uh, chicane. We have talked about the kind of green shoots of recovery, but this was actually a pretty horrible weekend for him, wasn't it? It's difficult uh, to be too positive about underlying trends on this one, isn't it? It is, yeah. This was actually probably even a worse weekend than Barcelona for him. Um, he looked lost. He looked. He sounded bewildered. He, he, he didn't seem to know where to turn to explain the, the deficit in performance. Um, there the, the was it was a very low grip track through the practices, and everybody was having all sorts of incidents. But he he really did look out of tune with the car. Um, it, yeah, it's just just not 
it's not happening for him and he's not there's something he's not understanding there's something whether it's tire behavior whether it's the linking up the sensation of what he's feeling with the technical aspects of the car there's something just not working because he's way better than this and it's just it, it, you know we're only seeing flashes of it yeah he's in a strange position because obviously Red Bull wants him to to get it all together and click and they like a lot of things about him I mean Scott you we're asking Christian Horner about this on on Friday in the the press conference, weren't you? In that he said Horner said, "Well, I don't know why the media is creating all this question mark over Albon." So you basically said, "Okay, right. Well, you're going to confirm <laughs> why it don't next you year, sign then? him?" Then? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, you you tried to put Horner on the spot. So where do you think Red Bull's mindset is at with with Albon? Do you think they're expecting a corner to be turned, hoping? Are they just waiting because they don't have to make the decision? It, what, what exactly is going on in the mind of that that team in terms of next year's lineup? Uh, if if I knew what was going on in a team that has Helmut Marco in a senior position, I, I I don't really sort of fancy my chances of how I'd cope with that scenario. To be honest, um, it's very difficult to second guess because this is a team that, as we've discussed before, was backing Pierre Gasly almost to the hilt until it binned him. So uh, publicly, there there is going to say something that's sort of a slightly polished version of whatever's in front of them in reality. So. A little bit tricky, but I think I, I think they do seriously want to persevere with Albon. I think it would make their lives a lot easier and it would please them immensely if Albon could put everything together and make what happened at Mugello more of a regular occurrence. So uh, the, that car is not clear second best at every circuit, but if he can be fourth on its good days and a battling fourth on its bad days, then that's what he needs to do. Unfortunately, I think where they're at now and the fact that they just don't seem convinced by Pierre Gasly, I would imagine their position now is Albon basically has maybe to the end of the season, maybe a little bit before then to properly convince them. But I think they are seriously keeping tabs on the likes of um, Hulkenberg and Perez, Nico Hulkenberg, Sergio Perez out of contract for next year. Hulkenberg's obviously out of F1 entirely. Checo's been ousted from Racing Point at the end of the year to make room for Sebastian Vettel. And the reason I say that, that's not a shot in the dark, but but basically Horner has admitted a couple of times that it their part of their job is to be aware of the other drivers who are available. It, it, they've always said the first priority is drivers within the Red Bull pool. But if that pool runs dry, then they need to look elsewhere. And Perez and Hulkenberg are two really good out-of-contract drivers to have um, sort of waiting in the wings which means Albon's probably not as safe as you might think he'd be even though Red Bull doesn't have any obvious alternatives because it doesn't it doesn't really seem to want Gasly yeah and I think um, you know we there's an automatic assumption that they will only ever take a Red Bull junior and usually they, they have but I remember at the time when um, they were looking to replace Mark Webber and Danny Ricciardo was obviously in consideration, but so also under very con- serious consideration at the time was Kimi Raikkonen. Um, they, they, they got quite a long way down discussing that. So it, it's it's not a given that they will only sign a junior. They, 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 I wouldn't say that the, the chances of Perez and Hulkenberg are, are, are slim. They're, I think they're significant. They just want it to be made easy for them, don't they? They're, just, they're like saying to Albon, come on, just you've got we think you've got this quite big bag full of ability and all the sort of skills that can come together but you've just got to find the instruction manual to assemble it all into being a a good top line grand prix driver but 
he's had quite a long time to get it. I, I was surprised I said to you earlier, Mark, but I'm almost slightly surprised that if there's sort of some something that's not clicking, it hasn't had sort of happened by accident. Because you sometimes see this with drivers, don't you? The the thing of understanding what works, and maybe they'll just have a day. I remember Giorgio Ascanelli, who was the technical director at Toro Rosso at the time, said there was a Friday practice in FP2 where where Sebastian Vettel in 2008 um, of Valencia suddenly sort of took a step in performance, but Ascanelli said to him, right, you have to understand what happened. You know, think about it, come back. And he, and Vettel came back the next day and said, yeah, I've got it. I, I understand how it all came together. And although it's a different situation, you feel like there's just like a little key that Albert needs to needs to find and the team's just willing him to do it. But there's only so much time they can, uh, they can leave it. Now, Scott, uh, before we get on to the rest of the, the points finishes, we have to have a look at the starts. Further down the field, Carlos Sainz crashed after misjudging how much speed he could carry into that kind of markerboard chicane on the turn two runoff. He'd actually survived a very brief reportage with Lando Norris on the run to the first corner. Uh, so that, plus Lance Stroll being in the wall at the exit of turn four after a clash with Charles Leclerc led to that safety car. But how much do you blame Sainz for that in terms of misjudging his speed and the, the kind of geometry of his approach to that cut through? And how much do you blame the corner and the markerboard chicane for that crash? Um, I kind of have to separate the two. So in the world that we live in where that chicane for some reason needs to exist, then science is 100% at fault. It's a foolish error. You could tell, I think, by the contrition over the radio that he knew that was a silly thing to have done. But I think the slightly more, I don't know if it's more generous, but I think the more honest appraisal is that that's a ridiculous corner not necessarily in the profile of the corner itself, but just with what they do with the runoff. And I think, I think it's, I, I think they've been asking for it. I'm amazed that that's the first time we've had it because every time they put their little chicane in place or they try to direct drivers to go off track, I think it's, I think it's risky. And as soon as you approach that chicane from anything other than sort of like a head on angle to the entry, I, I think you're, you're asking quite a lot of the drivers the, the the caveat in all this is that it it is there the drivers do know what to expect from it and yet signs still piled in at not really much of a reduced rate of knots uh, as evidenced by how hard he hit the wall yeah it's one of those things wasn't it Verstappen obviously took to it on the first lap but he was committed really early to it so that was fairly easy for him we saw Daniel Ricardo when he was let past teammate Ocon made a mistake and ran wide but it was a little bit too late for him to take it. And he said, you don't really know to quite late whether you're going to just go that little bit too far anyway. So he couldn't take it. Roman Grosjean knocked it over and then they had to have a VSC so that the marshals could put it back so he could go through it later again. Uh, I imagine he was slightly surprised to see it. Uh, it had reappeared. And Alex Albon obviously got a penalty as well for not going through it. So it's not a very satisfying solution, isn't it, is not it, Mark? It's, it's clearly just not... It's, it's that, that whole kind of corner, the geometry, even of just the regular turn and the runoff, it's just not quite right, isn't it? It's like it, it's kind of been created, and all the drivers say they've suggested fixes to it, um, but they keep being ignored. So, d- would you like to see not even not just the runoff, but the whole corner looked at? Yeah, I think you could reprofile it quite simply. You just um, move it a little bit further on, so you've got loads and loads of runoff there. I'm sure you could still have quite an acceptable level of safety if you just moved the corner a little bit further on and made the, the the acute approach from the inside not quite so critical, which it is at the moment. It, it's, it's very, very difficult to get through if you're carrying any speed at all and you're on a compromised line going in. 
um, I think that's, that's all it really would need. Yeah, relatively uh, easy to fix. And you don't need the uh, the, the bollard, the marker post chicane in the same way. But yeah, poor error from Sainz, ultimately. It was a slightly embarrassing one for him. And of course, it showered Lando Norris in debris as well, which didn't help uh, help his course. So a bad day for, for McLaren. But actually, Mark, on a kind of related note, it was a, a decent weekend for Racing Point, or certainly for... Uh, for for Checo Perez, um, he finished fourth, best result since finishing third at Baku in April 2018. He didn't have the Mugello aerodynamic upgrades that were meant to have been given to him because Stroll had that massive puncture-induced accident, and so he destroyed a set of it. So they were short apart. He did have the suspension upgrade, and that's really significant, isn't it? What they've put on the car. Yes, it is, and um, they were uh, expected to put the big upgrade on uh, for next season. It's the, the 2020 um, Mercedes rear end um, since the FIA said that any customer teams upgrading from 2019 components to 20 components wouldn't have to spend the, the, the token, the development tokens. Um, so this had upset Ferrari and McLaren in particular, so they were campaigning heavily to have that decision reversed. Um, so I th- I'm pretty sure Racing Point would have been very keen to get the upgrade on before the September 30th deadline, which if they'd succeeded in doing that, even if the decision of the tokens had gone against them and they reassessed and that you did have to um, spend a token to do that, it wouldn't have applied as long as they got it onto the car before the end of this month. So this was the last race you could do before the end of this month. Um, But as it turned out, they didn't need to do that because that, that, that decision has remained. Um, but if you've got if you've got a ready, it makes no sense not to put it on because it's uh, it's a performance advantage. Yeah, very very significant performance advantage. Really strong performance, I thought, from Perez as well. Qualified strongly in fourth place, uh, despite the fact he had the, uh, the the lowest spec card. Dropped to six at the start, and then passed Ricardo, jumped Ocon fourth place. That's about as good as that car was going was going to do. Obviously, it was a, a disappointing weekend for Lance Stroll. Partly his own fault in not going quickly enough on the first run in Q2. Didn't look quite as quick as Perez all weekend, actually, in that last sector in, in particular. But then, of course, he had that contact with, with Leclerc. Is anyone going to agree with Lance Stroll's claim that Leclerc should have been given a, a penalty for that one? Certainly, it wasn't Lance Stroll's fault what happened at Turn 4, was it? No, I think it was just a racing incident. There was two cars trying to get through and wasn't quite room. Um, I don't think one um, had a clear right over the other one. I think, uh, I think it's a sort of incident that the aggrieved party demands a penalty because in their view it is clear cut. But I think Leclerc was sort of arguing that he got caught out, I guess by Perez being in front of Stroll and then coming across the corner and then the downforce and aero sensitivity of these cars meant that Leclerc basically understeered. And I think they always take a bit of a blind eye to sort of not necessarily 50-50 incidents, but the wholly or predominantly to blame rule that the stewards have to impose to determine whether or not someone gets a penalty is I feel like the the burden of blame is always sort of like increased slightly for the first lap. So if you say that someone is maybe sort of needs to be 60-40 to blame in a normal circumstance, maybe they need to be sort of 70% to blame on, on, on this incident or, or whatever it is. But I can see Stroll's grievances, but... I, I also can see why the stewards sort of let it slide. Yeah, a little bit unlucky for Stroll. And he done a decent job on the first lap to get up to seventh and kind of undo some of the damage of, of qualifying. But yeah, one of those things. 
McLaren now are only two points ahead in the battle for third in the Constructors' Championship. And of course, Racing Point had lost that 15 points to the uh, the stewards' decision for the illegally designed rear brake ducts. So Racing Point really on the march. Now also, Scott, Renault had a decent weekend. They've had some recent upgrades that have worked well. Ricardo was sixth, two places ahead of Esteban Ocon on the other car. And Ocon actually had to let Ricardo pass, which led to that mistake as well. Well clear of, of Leclerc, despite that five-second penalty, so easily in fifth. Are you starting to be a bit more convinced by Renault after slightly more consistent showing, certainly in recent weekends? Yeah, I, I mean, I said um, I said at the start of... Uh, I said at the start of this year that one of the things that needed to be taken account, taken into account with Renault this year was that they changed the technical leadership over the course of last year and they made some particularly significant senior management changes towards the end of the season, which meant the 2020 car was designed fundamentally by a team that isn't considered fit for purpose at Renault anymore. So therefore, what the 2020 car did at the start of the season wasn't going to be necessarily reflective of the organisation that Renault is putting in charge of the new regulations and the re- and the next phase of the works team's development. But the upgrades that we saw in 2020 would be the result of the work led by Pat Fry and Dirk De Beer. Um, so these guys are having an influence on the 2020 car. It just wasn't in the original, in the genesis of the car itself, if you see what I mean. So I, I think this is really encouraging for Renault. Um, I think they've proven that they've got a competitive engine now. I think it's still a bit uncertain about the rely on the reliability side, to be completely honest. But the car is now starting to work at different tracks. It's not just a low downforce specialist car, so it, it's looking quite good. And if you were Daniel Ricciardo, maybe, maybe you're starting to doubt the decision to leave a little bit more than say when McLaren got a podium in the first race. Yeah, and he's certainly giving the team his $25 million a year worth of uh, performance, performing really well at the moment. Now, Mark, Esteban Ocon, seventh. He, he argued that was in some way, certainly the first stint was probably his his best so far this season. When he was on the hards, he he struggled. But at the same time, he was briefly third, actually, on the first lap ahead of Verstappen, then settled into fourth, then he finished seventh. So, you know, that's fine, but not a great day, was it? Because he... he had to let Ricardo pass. Ricardo was quicker. He got stuck behind Vettel, which is what allowed Perez, who ran longer on that that first stint on softs, to get ahead of him. So, how, how do you think Ocon comes out of this? Just a, a just a little bit number two by a bit too much of a margin, really, for them, isn't he? Yeah, I mean the gap was exaggerated, as you say, by circumstances. He wasn't as far off as the uh, the, the the final race results make it look. But yeah, he's just not um, he's not performing at Daniel's lever or or anything like. Um, yeah, we still we see flashes when um, when the track's wet. He's a great wet weather driver, um, but we need to see more than that. And I think um, this is the, the the first time we've seen him up against a truly world class teammate, and he's scratching a little bit. Um, that's not to say he can't get there, but uh, I, he's. Um, yeah, he's there's there's still too much of a deficit there, and he still uh, doesn't give the impression that he he knows uh, where it's where it's going to come from. And it's been pretty consistently two to four tenths in qualifying uh, since relatively early in the season after the first couple of races. So he needs he needs to to work on that. And yeah, slightly disappointing because he's got real ability, but high bar in Ricardo. But 
needs to be uh, to be delivering. Uh, we should talk about Charles Leclerc, though, uh, Mark. He's made a habit of pulling out these really strong midfield drives uh, this season. Is another one of those. Take took sixth, jumped Ocon, had a little bit of help from Vettel holding Ocon up. But uh, when you're in a Ferrari, this track that was about the maximum possible, wasn't it? Yeah, he's he's one of the stars of the season for me. Um, but he's just. Uh, he he pulls he pulls out results of from that car that it it just shouldn't be getting and it's it's saving the team from uh, even even worse embarrassment that it's already suffering. Yeah, I think I think saving the team from embarrassment is a good way of putting it. It's obviously Vettel struggled so much. When when you uh, when you look at the performances Leclerc's doing, um, he was obviously always going to have to draw on his experience from his rookie season at Sauber to thrive at Ferrari, but I did not expect him to be literally. Re- reliving his midfield heroics in the Salva in his second Ferrari season. <laughs> yeah, it is his 2018 greatest hits, isn't it, from uh, from Leclerc. It's a shame because I, I agree he's been one of the stars of the season. I did do a piece on the race's website before, uh, wherever we were, I've forgotten where we were, Sochi, uh, which is looking at the average driver ratings. And he was actually a chunk down because he's had two kind of big errors in races. Stereo took out Vettel and then Monza where he crashed out. But you know, those are two errors, but he's been really, really good, consistently good, I would say. Uh, Scott, let's have a bit of a look at Alpha Tauri. Although the Monza victory kind of shattered the grading curve for, for that team, P8 for Daniel Kvyat, P9 for Pierre Gasly, that's a pretty decent return for, for that team. Kvyat made that hard tyre uh, starting strategy work, well-executed race. That's only the second time he scored points on home soil and a rare chance for him to be the leading man for Alpha Tauri with... Uh, Gasly ninth. He had a had a bit of a late charge after that unhelpful extra pit stop under the virtual safety car that uh, that they were a bit apologetic for because they just expected the VSC to last a little bit longer, but it didn't take them very long to rebuild the Grosjean demolishing uh, Marco Bollard uh, <laughs> uh, chicane, did it? No, and uh, it's quite nice for Kvyat. I think he was uh, he he's he's doing a he does a good line in not being quick enough for the top 10 but being a good enough racing driver for the top 10 he's uh he's he, he's executing his drives quite nicely and it's it's a good little run for the team as well i think it's only um he's only one race that they've not scored a point in this year i think would have been um hungary uh, i suppose i think they've scored points everywhere else and i their their problem is they they're, they're obviously they're closer to that midfield cluster in the championship because of Gasly's uh, Monza win. But they'd have a genuinely respectable total without it. They are they are clearly ahead of the two Ferrari customers and Williams. Um and on their good days, they can properly um they can properly mix it with with the other cars. It's um it's a, it's pretty impressive. It's just the midfield is so crazy competitive and obviously Ferrari's now fallen into it and all the other teams are having such regular highs that this sort of quite encur- like encouraging and progressive seasons almost going a little bit unnoticed without that win. Yeah, and uh, actually the team's a little bit disappointed because Franz Tost was saying he was hoping for a little bit more. They weren't a million miles off uh, being a little bit better off. They they'd quite like the idea of trying to beat uh, Leclerc but didn't quite come off. So yeah, but you know, Alfa Tauri, good... Uh, Good points banking team at the moment. Now, Mark, another driver who has been under the radar probably for more legitimate reasons is Antonio Giovinazzi. Tough time he's had recently. Fine first lap. He won the unofficial Class C in 11th place out of Kevin Magnussen. Make any difference to his case for staying on next year or does sort of one 
good race for an erratic driver and frustrating driver not really make any difference. He's got to put those together every weekend for the remainder of the season, really, to to, to make a real claim on that drive. I think he's had a couple of seasons now, um, and it, it's th- that sort of performance is is the exception, isn't it? it you see flashes of it, this, but he's, he put it together for the weekend for once. Um, but yeah, if he can keep doing that, there might be, you know, good cause to reconsider um, about putting one of the juniors in his place. But um, yeah, I think it was a good performance this weekend, but I don't think it's on on its own, it's enough. Yeah, I did ask him on Thursday if he was worried about his future, given the uh, the success that the Ferrari junior drivers, the academy drivers are having in F2. Obviously, Mick Schumacher won again. Callum Eilert's right out there. Robert Schwartzman's having a decent first season in F2. So, yeah, it feels like the die is cast there, isn't it? The only real question is who takes his seat, unfortunately. But, yeah, frustrating driver because, he, as you say, doesn't string it together often enough. But when it does happen, you think there's a real driver in there. Real, real shame. Uh, well, Further back, we had uh, Kevin Magnussen was uh, was 12th. Pretty strong weekend for him. That's probably his best for uh, a while. Sebastian Vettel, 13th. Compromised a bit by a tiny bit running along in that first stint, but he wasn't really going anywhere. So he sort of was 13th, and then he sat in 13th. Kimi Raikkonen behind him, 14th, on his record equaling 372. Well, that's not a number. Record equaling 322nd <laughs> starts. His record equaling 322nd start. He'll be on 323 shortly. That's much easier to say. Uh, Landon Norris 15th with that damage. Uh, Nicholas Latifi, Roman Grosjean, who had the uh, Marcus Chicane incident, and then George Russell, who was 17th. He uh, had a late pit stop and also diced with Alvin Norris early on, but had that that big lock-up. Uh, which shortened that hard stint, but they were struggling, both Williamses, with tyres uh, massively, but a mistake there nonetheless from uh, from Russell. But Mark, coming back to Raikkonen and his unpronounceable record, uh, 322 starts, are you kind of excited about him equaling that starts record? Because assuming he makes the start of the Nürburgring in two weeks, only the eighth driver to hold that record outright, Giuseppe Farina, Juan Manuel Fangio, Maurice Trantignon, Jack Brabham, Graham Hill, Ricardo Petrezzi, Rubens Barrichello, that's a, a pretty good group all grand prix winners and a few world champions so it says something about a driver doesn't it yeah i wouldn't say i'm excited but i, I respect it these he's have to been doing something right to have st- still kept a place in the sport for that long um I, I, I suspect he's not that excited by it um but yeah it says something doesn't it, it, it and he's still he is still before he is still fully capable of performing to a, a, a decent level um it just not quite the the vintage Kimmy that um, that that used to be genuinely exciting every time you hit the track. But uh, yeah, he's um, to be. To, he came in as you know, so so young and raw. There was the questions whether he even got a super license because he'd only done something like fourteen car races in his life, and yet here he is, um, still pounding around at forty-one. Or is he forty-one or forty? Um, forty still. Yeah. So. Yeah, he's. Um, I think I think it's probably okay. it's safe to say that he can have the super license, isn't it? <laughs> probably proved himself. Scott, you look poised to talk. No, I was just going to say that. Um, it, I think it is significant, uh, and it, it's it's quite nice. Um, you 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 wrote. I, I will break my own rule and praise you publicly, Ed, because you wrote a nice piece um, about the significance of the record and. Mark's right. Kimmy doesn't care about it, but as Ed's argued quite eloquently on on a piece on the races website, he should care about it because it does matter. But in the grand scheme of things, it w- it was always going to be the other 
record that was equaled uh, on Sunday had Hamilton won his ninety one to taken a ninety first Grand Prix win and match Michael Schumacher. And the fact that it was easier for Kimi to equal that record than Lewis reflects on uh, how significant an achievement that they they are respectively. I think it's it's imp- I think it's important. It's something to be enjoyed, but it isn't blockbuster. Yeah, n- nobody goes into F1 thinking, yeah, I want to have the most starts ever. They think they want the most wins or or whatever. They don't want this. Or I quite like the most point, most starts without a points record because I think that shows a, a real dedication to uh, to lower grid teams that uh, Luca Badoa holds at the moment. Like George Russell's coming on uh, up the charts on that. We had a piece on the race website about that uh, that recently. But ultimately, if we come back round to, to the story at the front, this is just a point on the way, isn't it, for Lewis Hamilton? It's a bit of a low point for the season, but I don't, I don't think anyone's running around declaring this is Valtteri Bottas revitalising his title challenge, is it? He's, he's too far behind and he still needs a little bit of a fair wind on a weekend to, to make sure he, uh, he's able to, to, to beat Hamilton. It's, just, it's sort of the same old story, isn't it? It's, it's nice for him to get a win because uh, he is a very good driver. But yeah, I don't think we're going to be... Uh, not anticipating a seventh world championship uh, in a few, probably only a few weeks' time. Now, does anyone want to disagree with that? Just blank stares, blank stares, which translate very well on. Uh, For the sake of the podcast, I shook my head, and uh, Mark looked also uh, equally uninterested in fighting you on that particular point. I think Mark looks a bit disappointed because I think he's sat on the floor by a bed rather than in a, I in am, a chair. Uh, it's a reflection of the uh, late notice change of venue. We've got the Nürburgring coming up next. That's a nice circuit to go to. That'd be a pretty appropriate place for Hamilton to equal the record, and obviously he'll be favourites there. I imagine that Mercedes will be gathering around and taking a long look through the rule book just to make sure they haven't uh, failed to notice any other things they can account for. Because obviously Monza was the uh, was the the last time they they uh, they made an error and got the penalty for the pit lane being closed. But uh, yeah, hopefully there won't be too many more of these sorts of penalties uh, this year. Uh, we're going to go off now and get on with writing. Some more fascinating articles for the race.com and don't forget the hyphen if you want to head there mark's race analysis will be up very early monday morning followed closely by my ever controversial driver ratings that you can uh, disagree with in the comments and also whatever scott mitchell's cooking up if you have a few moments to fill between now and our next episode uh, we always appreciate a review on your podcast platform of choice uh, otherwise we'll be back next week with another of our rare podcasts that aren't actually looking back at an f1 race weekend <laughs>